It's Dear Instructional Designer, Episode 21. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dear Instructional Designer, the show about the instructional design journey. I'm your host, Kristen Anthony. This is the first episode of Season 2 of Dear ID, a season of episodes I hope to dedicate to exploring the different tools, technologies, and solutions that we use across the spectrum of people who work as instructional designers and developers. Today, I sit down with Craig Wiggins. You probably know him. He's one of the major XAPI advocates and speakers within ID on Twitter. And I wanted to ask him about what the XAPI is and how it fits into our work. And this turned out to be an awesome anchoring conversation for this season because Craig talks with us about how we can get back to the real root of instructional design, which is crafting solutions to performance problems, and how the XAPI encourages us to break out of our perhaps subtle, unconscious coupling of instructional design with e-learning. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Craig. All right. So howdy, Craig. Thanks so much for joining me. No, thanks, Kristen. I'm I'm really happy to be here. I'm actually uh, really honored. I've been looking forward to this all week. Oh, awesome. Yeah, me too. So Craig, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got into instructional design and instructional tech? Sure. So I'm in sudden, I I think this is a theme maybe with a couple of your guests, but my mother was a teacher. And I think like Brian, I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm going to do something else. Uh, so I was into anthropology in college and, and did a lot of research on my own during that time. And then after college, I went to DC to become the head of Brazilian music acquisition for a uh, Latin Brazilian music startup uh, in, in, I think in 2000. And uh, that's when I came to the DC area and still had nothing to do with a uh, learning or uh, training at all. But after that startup fell apart, as they all do, I uh, started working with the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington uh, here in DC, uh, which was in the, at the time, in the National Restaurant Association uh, uh, building. So the deal with that is that I was working to deliver training to bartenders and I was managing the education uh, materials for the RAMWA Foundation. And um, you know, after doing a couple sessions and helping instructors teach food safety, I realized that like, this could probably be done better. Hmm. You know, this could, uh, you know, this, some of these things are really not that helpful. Uh, for example, you know, I was doing a course on on alcohol safety um, that I sort of started, I already started tweaking at the time. And I realized a lot of the bartenders were coming out, you know, they work until two in the morning. Uh, and then my class was at like eight in the morning the next day or the same day. Uh, which, you know, didn't lead to the best outcome. So, right, yeah. you know, I, I, I uh, started changing a few things. I, I tried to get it moved to a different day. Uh, and then I suggested, well, I'll just go to, you know, I'll, I'll make it more worth their while if I go to the restaurants or to the bars where they are, um, and, and, you know, like off times or whenever it's, it's convenient for them. And that worked out really well, especially because it allowed me to customize my, you know, the curriculum that I was trying to do, that I was using at the time. Uh, things are a bit more standardized now than they were back then because that was literally 16 years ago. So, anyway, um, one thing came at, uh, one thing led to another. Uh, I still didn't really know what instructional design was, even though I was engaging 
uh, a lot of the principles or, or the activities that you would associate with it now. Fast forward a few years, I got a through uh, another company. I got a, a gig to develop e-learning, and this sounds terrible. I, I, I hate saying this, but it's the truth. To develop e-learning for the Caribbean Epidemiology Center, um, which is part of the Panamanian Health Organization, I believe, uh, on Trinidad, and um, I, I did it. So it was designing training for nurses operating mobile um, HIV units. Uh, so I, I didn't even know that was e-learning at the time, and because I had never even heard of e-learning at that point. So that was probably 2002 or something like that, 2001, 2002. And, um, you know, I, I, it's one of those things. That job was my first e-learning job, and I wish I could go back and do it over again. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would, I would actually probably pay them <laughs> to let me do it over again. Like, you know, it's like, you don't, like, they don't even have to fly me down. I'll just do it. So if anyone's listening at Carrick, I will pay to redo that course if you need it. I'm saying, I'm saying that publicly. <laughs> so at that point, I, I think after I was done with that job, I was like, you know, I really need to figure this out. Um, one of the things that happened is I, I met a real instructional designer who was helping with the content at the time. And I was like, well, this is, this makes sense. I should probably go back to school for this. So I did. I enrolled in a master's degree program in curriculum and instruction at George Mason University. At the time, it was a, a something called the Immersion Program. So I worked during the day, I wor- worked um, for the Mind Safety and Health Administration uh, to help with a uh, mind supervisor uh, training to kind of bridge the uh, generation gap in terms of like passing on implicit learning, et cetera. And then by night, you know, I would, I would, we would be doing classes. So after I was done with that, I went, worked for a few different organizations, um, had a really nice stint at the Department of State's uh, Foreign Service Institute, uh, where, you know, we were doing e-learning all the time, uh, was doing instructional design, and I became the head of e-learning instructional design uh, at the corporate executive board. And uh, that was pretty going pretty well. And then a friend of mine said, hey, they're looking for someone to bring instructional design sensibilities to talking about the experience API over at um, the Advanced Distributed Learning Initiative. Uh, so I joined uh, my current company, Problem Solutions Incorporated, or I'm sorry, Problem Solutions LLC, uh, where and through them, I am a CETA contractor, which means nothing to anyone outside the Beltway, but I'm a CETA contractor who works as the head of outreach for uh, ADO. That's it. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a very winding path. And please, please. Feel, of... Yeah, please feel free to edit all that down. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's always interesting to hear how people, you know, get to where they are now. That that was a lot of different industries that you went through. I left out all the, uh, the kind of sketchy things. But yes, that, <laughs> it's, it's just it's just the cool take. But yeah, I mean, you know, here's the thing. I'm, I'm, and Chris, I'm sure you know this by now. Most people, maybe not as many as they used to be, but when I was coming up, and man, that, that sounds weird saying coming out of my mouth, but when I was coming up, I mean, a lot of people were like that. When I went to school with a guy who ended up working as an instructional designer for the postal service, I remember, but when he was coming through the program with me, you know, he had already had a full career as a, uh, as a, I think, a, I want to say a mason, or it's, he, he laid tile um, or something. He had his own company, et cetera, but he... Um, he had sort of a little personal crucible and he came out the other side and he said, you know what? I want to be an instructional designer. So he is. And, and as far as I know, um, he still is. So people were, you know, people came from different walks of life for different experiences and they brought that with them to be instructional designers. And I don't think that people who are operating now are 
any lesser for not having a very experience or anything. But, you know, I think most people, I feel like most people were like me back then. They just kind of fell into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what exactly does the ADL concentrate on? Like what kind of work? Yeah, that's, what a, they do? <laughs> that's a good question. And I can't talk about it. No, I, I, I can talk about it. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that would, that would make my job really, really, really simple. Actually, if I couldn't. So I am, let's see, let me back up. So uh, ADL, uh, or the Advanced Physical Learning Initiative, was started back in 1999 by Presidential Executive Order 13111. And the whole goal of that was to see how learning science and technology could improve efficiency for basically um, preparing both warfighters and uh, civilians and the whole, and, you know, basically improving learning and, and uh, performance, really, in the whole of government. So the Department of Defense is uh, who ADL is a part of, and I think we're part of the, we're under the, dec- the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force and Education, so, or Force Education and Training, rather. And it's, we serve as kind of a, well, we're, we're a, an R&D outfit, basically, for the DOD in terms of learning science and technology. As most people know, our first task was to tackle the problem of content you know, data or rather, yeah, I guess uh, a content interoperability, I, I guess to call it. Basically, you know, keeping people from having to use different tools and then, you know, according platforms for learning management systems, there needed to be some way to tie, you know, digital or distance learning together in, in a way so that there was interoperability between things that were created. So content created on one platform didn't require the same platform um, to be done. And, you know, just so everybody knows, that was because, you know, not just industry, but the federal government and the military were paying a lot of money to uh, contractors and other people to make sure they had the same platform. So if you hired someone, you had to get, you know, they had to bring in their own tools, et cetera. And that was just kind of a pain. So mm-hmm. that's what SCORM came out of. So that what we do is we work to create learning science and technology, open source software, things like SCORM, which is essentially what that is. And we put them to use. Uh, we have an entire you know repository of open source software that's free to the public we you know we do on, on, so we provide that we conduct or we support ongoing research into learning science and technology um, to support you know future forward goals so i think the goal that we have right now that i'll probably talk about a little bit later is something that you know we're looking forward <laughs> it's funny we used to say 2020 but that's actually not that far away so yeah i want to say maybe 20 let's say 2040 you know, in line with a lot of other initiatives within the DOD. And we're trying to make sure that primarily that the armed services, but also the whole of government and then our academic partners and our coalition partners and people in industry, you know, have the base technologies in order to create, you know, more efficient, more effective performance support solutions. That was a lot. Okay. Yeah. No, no, that was really clear. I think that was, that was a very helpful definition. So just to, Take a little detour here. One of the things that you mentioned was that you guys do research, and I've been thinking about a side project where I would sort of, you know, display various research. But I'm, I'm interested, you, you know, how many, you know, do, does that research that you guys do trickle down to sort of instructional designers? Do people look at that and and get value? From yeah, that? I mean, yes, <laughs> at least I, I definitely hope so. If, if they're if they're not, I'm I should probably and again another public de- declaration. If they're not, I should probably be fired. 
so, so yeah, I mean, there, so when we talk about research, a lot of it is, you know, there are research studies or white papers that are, are produced, and those definitely do make their way to uh, the public. Uh, like a lot of research, you know, it's basically a matter of where you're looking. Although, you know, one of the things we're working on right now is trying to make a lot more of the things that we produce available to people. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the research we do and that we find is actually focused on, you know, creating what we'll call, you know, the, the plumbing, for lack of a better term, or the, the infrastructure for future learning ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So we'll work on, we will work with partners um, to help us create components of what that future learning ecosystem is not working on a particular software or particular program in particular uh, i said i think i said that three times but looking at looking at uh basically how something might be supported rather than coming up with a solution because we're, you know i think we learned a long time ago working with scorm in particular that while we're pretty smart we're not the smartest people in, in the city as you know let alone the country or the world so um, we, we, you know, we've needed all the help we can get to get that that sort of thing done. So our research is actually made to trickle down to instructional designers because we need their feedback. I think one of the really good examples of that was how the Experience API kind of came out. So this is going to be probably an awesome segue. Yeah. It's, uh, we, we made sure that we, you know, we could have looked at SCORM and said, okay, you know, this needs improving or this needs, you know, maybe like a an alley-oop or something. But you know, we figured, okay, we really need to open this up to the public because we're, we need to understand where their pain points are and we need to be able to serve them properly. Mm -hmm. And we need something extensible. So, and, and, you know, uh, given to evolution so that we can continue to make it worth their while to adopt and, and, you know, uh, change on, on, you know, to their, uh, to their liking. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that is a good segue. Um, because, one of the reasons I asked you on the show is that you, you are my XAPI guy. And I've been hearing yeah. about XAPI for a couple years now, but it's it's yeah. still sort of this thing where it's like, what is it and what does it do and what does that have to do with me? So can you explain a little bit about what the XAPI does? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to back up and kind of, because we're talking hopefully to instructional designers, yeah. I'll couch it in, in terms that I think a lot of IDs are familiar with. For better or for worse, so... Obviously, most people know uh, ADL created shareable content object reference model um, or SCORM. And to that, I'll, I'll pause and say, you're welcome. Uh, and, and, and I'm sorry, because one of the things that, you know, SCORM created order and created stability in a world of different formats and things. And that was really good. The downside of SCORM is that it created very limited ways or pathways by which one could operate or create distance learning. At least, you know, it, it, SCORM itself, you know, had its own limitations. And of course, you know, if you wanted to sell things to the federal government, for example, there is actual, you know, uh, instruction um, that kind of mandates that, you know, this must be SCORM conformant. Well, okay, that's why a lot of LMSs or most LMSs in the world are exactly that. But, you know, as time went on, we realized that we had the desktop, what is it, how, how would I say, the desktop, sitting at a desktop with a keyboard and mouse learning experience, we had that all sewn up. And that's cool. Mm -hmm. But, you know, smartphones started appearing. And at first they were kind of annoying. And we were like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this in the future. And then they kept coming. And uh, then people were actually making blended learning work for them, which was great. But we were, you know, a lot of people in the world were struggling to figure out how to track those learning experiences. 
And so while we were focused in SCORM on content interoperability, uh, we soon came to find that we needed to focus on data interoperability, right? So we asked, we, we kind of put it out there to the community and we uh, asked, okay, could you give us some feedback on what, what you think is needed for the what we called at the time the next generation of SCORM? Mm-hmm. I should probably sit, pause here right now and say that the next generation of SCORM is probably not a good way to describe uh, the experience API. I would say that XAPI is an extension of the things that SCORM is trying to do, but SCORM, you know, it'll be around for a while. Plus, it's kind of it's kind of our baby. It's maybe the baby that won't leave the basement. It's thirty, but <laughs> you know, but it's still we still we still love it. And we send we send hot pockets downstairs every once in a while. So although we're not feeding as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. So in any event, the um, XAPI is a lightweight. Uh, for lack of a better term, data transport mechanism, meaning that it gets outside, it allows you to take uh, learning experience data and push it outside of walled gardens or outside of devices. And it's made to track any learning experience, not just online. Uh, it is able to track offline activities. It's able to take advantage of um, uh, sensor data or uh, physical activity data activities that are done in formal learning settings, uh, which is something that, you know, SCORM has traditionally struggled with. So that's really what it is. It's, it's a method for getting your data out of the things that are producing evidence of learning experience and then um, putting them someplace where you can query, putting that data someplace where you can query and then make draw your own conclusions about what is happening. And then really for an instructional design standpoint, the whole point of all of this is to understand what's happening with your learners or your performers and then change your systems to better serve them or to better understand what they're doing and then how to assess them. That's really the importance for instructional designers. There's a lot more to it that involves talking about JSON and the uh, structure of the XAPI statements and many other things, but I have a feeling you you probably have a, a good grasp on that and your readers or your listeners rather may as well. Awesome. So that that was a really good distinction. So SCORM is about sort of content interoperability and XAPI is data interoperability. That was that was really, really useful. I think a lot of people are going to find that helpful. But okay, so and I've heard this before, SCORM is going to be around for a little while, but we Mm -hmm. also have XAPI. So what I mean, what is sort of and you you talked a little bit about this, but, you know, I, I. I'm in an organization and we've been using SCORM packages and that that's what we do. And I mean, is, is there a switch sort of involved to using XAPI or is it just, is it an add on? And if there is a switch sort of what, what does it look like? What's the change that sort of has to happen to integrate the XAPI into what, what I'm doing as an ID? That's a good question. So a couple, uh, gosh, a couple months back, we were sitting around. Actually, I can't take credit for this. My colleague, um, Tom Crichton at ADL, you know, he and my uh, another colleague, John O'Poltrack, were talking about this and the fact that, you know, talking to our, our major stakeholders, you know, they're heavily invested in SCORE, the, as is just about everybody. And that's what we wanted, by the way. We wanted everyone to be heavily invested in SCORE. That's how we got that content uh, interoperability set up. However, if we wanted them to move beyond, we needed to not just say, oh, look, there's a really cool thing on the other side of the fence. We had to tell them, all right, you know, you're not just going to wave your, your hands and then be there. There are a couple steps you may want to take. So we thought up something called the SCORM to TLA roadmap. And I'm going to share that link with you 
you know, obviously after we we finish talking today, but it's it describes four phases for transition transitioning rather to a service based learning platform. So phase zero, and we're we're terrible at naming phases. That should have been phase <laughs> one. So it's really confusing. It's four phases, but you start off. But the end is phase three. So that's we're starting with. We we decided SCORM would be phase zero, and the reason for that is that SCORM is where people are. Mm-hmm. You know. We don't, at ADO, we don't really, we, we, this does happen sometimes where we do talk to people who have not yet adopted SCORM because they, they haven't really started e-learning at all. They don't know what they're doing. So we're like, okay, what you need to do is this, and maybe not talk to us, then many people can help you with this. But um, SCORM is phase zero. So it's a typic, typical, you know, learning environment. The LMS is central, et cetera, et cetera. The next phase of that, phase one, is, you know, you're still leveraging SCORM to manage all aspects of the course from you know, launching to learner progress to all the stuff you get, all the SCORMI data, right? Mm -hmm. However, uh, phase one is where you introduce the uh, aspect of reporting learning experiences via XAPI, as well as using your traditional SCORM tracking. So this, what happens at this point, and man, I kind of want to draw a diagram. Maybe I'll I'll do that later. (laughs) You've got, so when people are listening up, they can just look at at the webpage here, or maybe not. They can just imagine me waving my hands. So... On one part, you've got um, you've got your LMS, you know, doing the thing it's always done. Um, but you also have an LRS, or Learning Record Store, that's receiving Experience API data. Now, when you look at, you could theoretically have a um, an activity provider, and an activity provider is anything such as a course or a you know a video run on your tablet or you know, a MOOC, you know, um, um, discussion board or whatever. It's something that produces experience API statements. So you can have a number of activity providers, some pro- producing XAPI statements like the aforementioned items. Uh, and then you could have, um, you know, an e-learning course or something else that is producing learning experience data in SCORM. So this is happening at the same time. The LMS is still central to everything. But more often than not, what you're doing is you're starting, you're doing the beginning of what we call dual tracking you are maybe overlapping some of the data that you have or filling in the gaps of learning experience with XAPI. So that's phase one, I'd say. And that's what we call, of the four phases, the LMS-centric phase. So phase two, (laughs) this is belaboring it, but phase two is what we call LMS-centric. And it is where you, and this is the major shift, I think, for instructional designers who understand SCORM and definitely for developers, you know, and, and, or, and or people who have to maintain LMSs, right? Where you make the LMS just another node in your uh, future learning ecosystem. So it's not the center, but it may be necessary. So you might need an LMS for, you know, to be a system of record or to handle certain things. Um, I worked for an organization some time back that, it, you know, it kept merging uh, and, and sort of eating other companies, which was great. But for the L&D department, what would happen is that they would then have to deal with a new LMS all of a sudden because they, they their company would swallow another company which had their own LMS and their own way of transferring uh, experience information. And, you know, they had to figure out what to do. You know, a lot of this could be made easier by having different nodes report to learning record stores and reporting on that and gathering that information, but maybe retaining learning management systems and then having LRSs that are attached to those. So as an aside, before I kind of get to the last part of this, one of the things that I think instructional designers are going to have to learn to do, you know, that they maybe don't spend as much time 
doing now is really becoming, you know, thinking a lot about business processes and then, you know, about data flow and then planning those data flows and then planning how they want to capture evidence. Right now, a lot of that is abstracted, you know, because we have authoring tools and we have learning management systems. And to be honest, if you're an instructional designer, you really don't have to think, you don't have to think a lot about that if you have really competent people, you know, watching the LMS and, and making sure that other system data is reported properly, you know, maybe, you know, dumped into a dashboard or, you know, someone, you know, hand cranks a spreadsheet or whatever. But in, LR, in any event, in phase two, it's the third phase, uh, LR-centric stuff is what it means that the LMS moves to the side. It's not the main. So, you know, this would be for you if your organization relies on an LMS, but may, but only for, you know, existing integrations of other systems, you know, mm-hmm. or if you're offering tools or content developers create scoring content, rather. But invest in content managed outside of the LMS. Uh, maybe your organization is beginning to use mobile apps. And this is, this is important. At this phase, you know, if you're just starting to introduce things like, you know, Maybe we'll get stuff from mobile games that we've created or apps that we have or simulations. You know, if you're able to use open source simulations and you want to have, you want to report on that simulation activity, you know, doing that in SCORM is going to be really painful. Mm -hmm. But it can be really, you know, as we've demonstrated with our virtual world sandbox uh, platform, which is an open open source free simulation platform and game building platform that people can actually access right now. We have managed to hook it up so that it can export experience API statements. You can track you know down to very granular activities or you know even or very coarse depending on what you like activities that are happening within a simulation to pipe that in that would have to be NCPI data you know mm-hmm. but if it's part of a larger uh, curriculum you'd want to also bring in that score information so so that's that's where you are there um the final phase which is really it's like a big question mark is <laughs> something that we call we call it tla which stands for total learning architecture and that you know, I could go into that and I could do the rest of our show, but it's really the future. I mean, that's really a good way to think about it. It is, it's for organizations that either don't have an existing LMS, which is not very many at this point, uh, or if you have a high tolerance for risk and change and want to be front runners of new learning environment specifications and standards, which, you know, that takes a lot of risk, admittedly. Or if your existing or potential learning experience design includes various learning technology applications, like we're really cutting edge with your applications, learning science and technology. And I, and I have to say, and I hope they'll forgive me for saying so, but uh, a lot of my major stakeholders, you know, in the uh, federal government and in the military, they are not necessary at necessarily at the forefront. Uh, they're getting there and they have, you know, they have all the intentions to do so, but they're for very good reasons they're not. So this phase, this final phase represents, you know, the, you know, what we don't know about how technology will be leveraged. And as such, you know, you'll be free from hopefully any of the restrictions that, you know, con- that we have right now regarding both content and data um, and uh, interoperability. So that that's really, uh, those are the phases. But the one that's really, the, the two that are really important are the ones uh, I guess that would be phase one and phase two. So that would be the second and third phase, element-centric and LRF-centric. That's where the change happens. As reference, I know that myself and a few colleagues wrote a series of articles in uh, Learning Solutions Magazine, I think, in the end of 2014 and then throughout 2015 on basically different aspects of, you know, how to adopt the Experience API. Like, what do you, you know, what do, you, what do your developers need to know? 
you know, what does an instructional designer need to do? So I would definitely encourage people to check those out. I, I don't know if you allow that sort of thing on your show, but I, oh, I absolutely. Just, yeah. We, we want to link to those. Oh, I love to give those to you. And uh, yeah, so there'll be more self-plugging as we go along. So I just want to <laughs> warn everybody as we, as, we, as we advance. So that's my long-winded answer to that's where it happens. So that that was really interesting because when it, you, you pointed out sort of this, basically a, a new skill set. And I, I have another question about this, but my first one would be, you talked about instructional designers need to think about basically uh, learning and systems architecture. Yes. And, you know, I, I know that there are some job posts that, that are sort of instructional systems designer. Like, do you think that that's something that IDs themselves need to develop or yes. is that is that something that you know they'll they'll rely on you know maybe a new team member to to work about work with so yeah so i was just talking to a just yesterday i was talking to a stakeholder it, they were um a distance learning team associated with a, a federal government agency and they asked kind of that same question and of course the question the meaning in the air you know behind that question was we also don't have, you know, the capacity to hire, you know, every component that we might need to do the best work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we would need people. We need to understand what needs to be known or what needs to be understood, and maybe people would have to multitask. So, what I'll say is this: ideally, you know, teams would have, you know, teams that are engaged in learning, experience design, or performance improvement uh, solutions would have content curators and information architects. They would have have developers familiar with web services that enable new learning science and technology solutions. They'd be familiar with, for example, JSON. They would be uh, more than a little familiar with JavaScript, I would say, at this point. They, as far as designers are concerned, they, you know, in, in this case, I'm not just talking about instructional designers, but also interface and usability experts. Um, they would need to be familiar with mobile responsive design, you know, the use of active gaming and serious, and how that differs from serious and educational gaming. They would need to be familiar, and this is really important for instructional designers, they would need to be in, uh, familiar with non-SCORM-based learning solutions. That sounds kind of patronizing for me to even have to say, but, you know, here, here's the thing, and you, you know this, Kristen, because you're on, you're on, uh, you visit to the uh, instructional design subreddit as well as the e-learning subreddit, although that e-learning subreddit, man, that's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> that's my fault. I'm, I'm the mob there. But, you know, what happens a lot of times is it will get you know, there'll be questions that will pop up in either one of those subreddits. And, you know, with almost without regard to the differences between the domain of instructional design, which is large and storied, and, you know, the domain of e-learning, which is really, you know, very narrow, you know, in comparison. But I say this because a lot of people, when they think instructional design, they think e-learning. And that, uh, I I think hiring bodies, and I think you know, some academic institutions that are trying to ready people for the workforce, and, you know, I understand that, are maybe don't do enough to provide an accurate distinction, but enough of that. They need to understand non-SCORM-based learning solutions, including online and offline functionality, um, you know, how that might work, how that relates to people doing things in the real world. They need to understand really, I mean, without, you know, without the hype, they need to understand how massively open online courses can be used. They need to understand, you know, uh, subtleties and ways to get at evaluating or, 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 or assigning value to contributions that are made in conversation. 
you need people, and this is this, I could talk all day about this. People will need to be comfortable with learning analytics, and this is something I've been really excited about in the last couple. Last, I'd say the last two years, I've been very interested in, and I've, I've, you know, I'm kind of sitting on my hands. In fact, whenever I see it in the community, because I don't want to, don't want to spook people, but people who start seeing the real value of, you know, being detectives and paying attention to business issues and then solving them and looking at them as performance issues and then trying to fix them, whether or not they have anything to do with learning. And I would say that what we call learning analytics, and I don't just mean people who manage the learning management system, although those people are ripe for uh, conversion, in my opinion. You know, I'm, I'm really happy with what I'm seeing. I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with this, but the Society for Learning uh, Analytics Research, uh, SOLAR, puts on a, a conference every year called Learning and Knowledge, I believe, uh, LAK. Mm-hmm. I'm probably getting it wrong. But, you know, for the past few years, they've had XAPI hackathons, and um, several of the people involved in that event, you know, um, have put out some really interesting learning analytics tools. Uh, chief, at least, that comes to mind right now, Dr. Christy Kitto uh, of Australia, her uh, Connected Learning Analytics Toolkit, um, you know, comes right out of that. And, you know, that that kind of thing is, I, I mean, instructional designers should be aware of all these things. And then they should have them in their heads when they go to look at problems and try to solve them. I, I think e-learning has done, and this is where I get up on my soapbox, so feel free to edit this part out. But, but you know, I'm an, I, I identify myself in a lot of places as an e-learning jockey. And I, I introduce myself that way when I go to conferences and when I talk to people at uh, <laughs> with DOD partners and stuff. Um, so they know where I'm coming from, and that usually puts them at ease. And as an e-learning jockey, I have to say, you know, e-learning has warped our brains. It's really made it, it's made it, you know, our whole jobs are really to find out what's wrong in a system of performance and then help people fix it. And I feel like e-learning, focusing on e-learning to a large degree has taken us away from that. It's abstracted the means by which we make things. But more importantly, it takes away from all the possibilities that one might have to fix or solve a problem. You know, like we're really kind of trying to fix things with the same brick when there are all sorts of materials and, and things available to us, even if we don't have many resources. In fact, even more so, if you don't have many resources to work with, I think it makes sense to understand all of the tools or other things and materials that you might have at your disposal. If you're disposed to think about solutions or performance support or improvement in certain ways. And so, Craig, I, I love that. I love that. And I'm good because I, 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 I talked for a long time, so I'm happy. <laughs> no, I, I loved all of it. And so just sort of selfishly, let me ask you, you know, I'm, I just came out of higher ed where, you know, pros and cons, but I guess sort of one of the pros was the, the ability, th- those were people who I think were sort of actively thinking about systems <clears throat> and, and experimentation, but um, I just got a new job and I'm, I'm right now I'm in the private industry at a software mm-hmm. company. And so right. as, as an ID, you know, are, are there any ways for me to sort of practice this, this big thinking, okay. this systems thinking, maybe even outside of work to think about performance solutions, even outside yes. of e-learning? Is there any way for me to practice that? So let me tell you about a time I was delirious in the sun recently. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I went down to, uh, 
South by Southwest a few months ago to talk about. I went to South by Southwest EDU and uh, South by Southwest Interactive to talk about XAPI. And during one of the sessions or a session period at South by Southwest EDU, I, you know, I've been shaking a lot of hands, so I started feeling ill because that's what happens when a bunch of people get together in one area. So I uh, went outside, and of course it was Austin, so it was really hot, and I'm <laughs> I don't have water. I'm kind of laying down, and I'm, you know. At this point, someone should have taken my phone away from me because I was like, I know what I'll do. I'm feeling half delirious and I'll start tweeting. <laughs> so I, I had this long, and I, and I hope it's lost. Uh, it's not retrievable at this point. But I have this long thread where I'm just outside grousing about, you know, the fact that, man, we really, you know, I've been talking to teachers and, you know, not, you know, what people we don't necessarily consider when we think about instructional design, which is kind of weird, talking to, you know, secondary school teachers and people looking at um, really looking at pedagogy and, and then also people um like i uh, and i cannot pronounce her name but the the ceo of little bits the company that uh creates these connected devices and we'll get back to that in the show notes probably but you know i was just thinking man we really need to get back to roots you know we need to think about how to solve problems without turning back to technology and what people may or may not know is that when south by southwest happens that downtown area around the convention center becomes all the bars and the restaurants, they they get remade. So they fly people in from around the country to like remake a local pub into the Samsung house, right? And then like a local restaurant is the Google house. So that happens all over the downtown area. And so if you're not from there and you just fly in for interactives, like you, you may be, you could be forgiven for, for thinking that the Google house is there year round. In fact, it's not. But what I found interesting and I started <laughs> tweeting about is that you know, one of the big competencies I think an instructional designer should have uh, should be to be able to look at people or, you know, watch people working, you know, just look at them, just observe people working and then think about, okay, what are the things that that person must have to be able to do in order to get that job? Because, I, you know, I started, I got up as I was tweeting and I started talking to people as they were sawing and, and painting and, I, and they were, look, let's say they were more than a little annoyed that I was coming up and bothering them. But, <laughs> But I, I was persistent and also a little delirious, so I think they took pity on me. And uh, I don't remember one guy gave me water. But anyway, I, we were talking, and uh, you know, he, uh, the one guy in particular kind of told me, "Yeah, you know, there's a bunch of hoops you have to go through, and if you work with these people, you know, you get to do this." And uh, you know, he told me about the different aspects of the job and the different things he'd been called to do over the several years that he'd been working there. And he said something that led me to talk to a bunch of other workers. He said, you know, the hardest, the thing that's the hardest about this job, you know, it's a really good job, you know, pays really well, and, you know, they'll fly you in from wherever. But the part that's really hard is that, you know, you have to work with a bunch of people you've never worked with before. And he said that he thought that the people who got called back were the people who were really good at working in teams with people that they didn't know and who could sort out their relative skill sets really easily and make it easier on the foreman or whoever the person would be who was organizing that particular project. And so I went and talked to a bunch of other people and bothered other people at other buildings and they kind of said the same thing. You know, they, they talked about it, you know, how, you know, it was difficult to do this or that, but a lot of the skills they learned on the job, the one thing that, you know, made them uh, eligible, they thought to come back was their ability to work together. So I thought, getting back to your question, I thought, okay, this is a perfect example. Like, you know, instructional designers should be able to go and watch people and, and create competency frameworks based on what they think people should be, you know, have to know. 
in order to be able to do, in order to be able to do that job. Then they should go and be able to do, and this is where my ethnographic background comes in, and, and I hope it you know would be useful to other people. They have to then go to talk to people and figure out not just listen to what they say, but also kind of probe and then get a good sense of you know what are the things that are what are the what fills in the gaps of that competency framework that you've created. What is really necessary? Once you get a good picture of what people need to know and what they need to be able to do and what their goals are and you know how one might assess you know assess competency in order to do you know to be at a certain level of whatever then you're really getting somewhere and that 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 goes for you know that goes for academia that goes for the military that goes for every branch of professionalism that I've ever worked with or in you know and I think instructional designers really need that's a it's an old skill what I've just talked about but it's something that I think I mean I am very grateful to the people who ran my master's degree program at George Mason University, because I think they they really made that clear at the time. And I just wanted to get, I was like, okay, that's really cool, but I want to start working with Lectora right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I was just like, this is this is nice. But, you know, as time has gone on, like, that's just, I mean, if, if nothing else. So, again, another long-winded answer to your question. That is really where we need to be and instructor designers need to do that more than ever because i think the world you know the training and learning architecture that i was talking about earlier you know the four pillars of that architecture are you know experience tracking which is what's being handled by experience api right now uh, that whole you know exporting statements in xapi and then catching them in learner record stores and then being able to query them learner profiles so data about learners including preferences course completion history scores master competencies and the learning paths and things like that learning content so content brokering how content gets to people which is a really interesting problem um but also and this is something i'm really you know kind of excited about you can probably hear competencies you know enabling tools and systems to reference common competencies to report learner information in comparison to competency structures and to align resources with competencies for recommendation like that whole the idea of a recommendation engine for example based on people's you know where they are right now and what they need so just the idea of just-in-time learning mm -hmm. has to be supported by you know all four of these experience tracking the idea of learner profiles uh, you know, learning content or problem of launch, as we call it, and uh, competencies, all four of those things. And like, you know, we're, how do I say this without sounding fanatical? <laughs> this is like, this is a really good time to be an instructional designer. We are at the four, we're, we're, we're kind of like, I don't know, like, <laughs> I'm picking up position on the leg. Um, we're like calf deep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how far deep we are. We're like calf deep right now in, in an era where, you know, informal learning is being taken more seriously. And people are not just because people have been talking about it in, in the higher echelons of, you know, in, in CLO suites, for example, but because that's what people are doing already. Like YouTube is really popular for a reason. You know, people, you know, people like my stepfather who used to like wear out the phone bill calling 411 so that he could get information, uh, you know, to figure stuff out. Like he is on YouTube all the time. You know, he, you know, he uses it to, fix things he uses it to build things he uses it to figure out you know how to you know uh, save himself time learning is you know informal learning is already happening around us like we are in a really good position to affect real change with our skill set or we're in a position to be left behind while people figure it out for themselves mm -hmm. so yeah 
So, Craig, as as a follow-up to that, I work, as I said, for a software company, but we provide end-user learning objects for hundreds of companies, right? So we aren't creating for internal teams, and we aren't, you know, I think what most people would think of as an L&D organization. And so I very recently was talking with a manager of another group about the XAPI, and she mentioned that while she had heard of it, she she was just sort of pushing pushing it aside because for all of these these opportunities that it's supposed to provide us for insight, it seemed like it required a lot of agency on the part of the user on the, or the learner uh, yeah. Yeah. to sort of track their own. You know, I had a conversation with X, or I went and watched right. a YouTube video. You know, is that a valid concern? No. <laughs> no, I mean, I actually, I understand why someone would think that. And actually, I I think it's, a, okay, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this in August since I'm saying it now. So I have a, like a little bit of time. But I think maybe the people who understand XAPI the best have not done the best, and that includes me. So hopefully they won't come and get me. I think we've not done as good a job as, as possible in talking about the ways in which in clever instructional design and data flow and understanding information architecture really will help you arrive at ways to get information about learner activities without having them be consciously feeding that information, right? So um, a good example of what your colleague is talking about is, uh, let's see, so it would be if you were, you know, if you had a bookmark button, you know, where you were sort of like, oh yeah, I want to report that I was on this page so you click that button, and of course, it'll send an XAPI statement saying that Kristen visited, you know, URL, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, you're relying on a couple of things. You're relying on people to remember that. You're relying on them to try and think about, okay, well, do I want to include this? I want to leave this part out. Right. Yeah, a lot of that stuff is, you know, whether or not your learners are have to be conscious of, you know, having to surrender information is almost entire. I would say, yeah, almost entirely uh, up to the craftiness of the instructional designer. So that's kind of a, I kind of throw that back to the instructional design world as a challenge. I will say really quickly, well, I'll try to make it quick, I'm sorry. <laughs> I will say really quickly, one of the really cool uh, attempts at trying to combat that was something called the XAPI design cohort. And that's something that I ran for two years at ADL with my colleague, uh, Andy Johnson. And it was started by uh, my good friend and, uh, I guess, ADL alum, uh, Aaron Silvers, a few years back. So the XAPI design cohort is um, was a 14, well, it was originally nine weeks, but it was a 14-week virtual experience where people were divided up into virtual teams and they worked together you know, on their teams for 14 weeks. They would come from different backgrounds. They'd be designers and developers and people who didn't do either of those things, but just were curious. And they would get on these teams and we'd meet, they would meet, you know, as many times a week as they wanted to, but we all met together weekly, virtually to talk about their progress. And along the way also to help people, you know, with their, you know, what, with what they're doing. And the aim of all this was to help people who, you know, understood a little bit or maybe not enough about XAPI really understand what they were doing and get down you know, understand how things could be um, leveraged in their favor by, you know, doing things themselves and by watching what their peers are doing. Uh, at the end of that process, we would have a big event. Uh, I think our first one was in Orlando, uh, at our Orlando office, and the second one was up at our Alexandria, Virginia office, I believe. 
and you know we had two days of workshops and then you know one day would be workshops and the second day would be you know everyone showing off what they worked on and uh unfortunately adl is no longer doing that we're we're focusing on a few other things right now most notably the total learning architecture but um our friend megan torrance uh it has picked that up and she's doing the xapi learning cohort which is essentially the same thing actually probably better to tell the truth um and you know true to form uh they i think they wrapped up a season recently and they had instead of the xapi boot camp that we did uh they had what they call the xapi party which sounds much more attractive <laughs> and um and they did you know did kind of the same thing they had uh, workshops and they had uh they had uh presentations from people and and you know, work out really well. But the whole point of that was to help people who were curious and kind of understood how this might be useful, but wanted to see it in action when they get their hands dirty. So I would definitely recommend that to you uh, or anybody else who wants to get involved in that. I will include that note as well, because, or that link as well, because I, I think more people should do that. I got a better sense of how I should talk about XAPI to people who kind of sort of had a, a sense of what they wanted by running the XAPI design cohort, you know, really kind of getting in there with people and seeing what they were doing. And, you know, some really cool projects came out from that entire experience. Yeah, yeah. I, I know uh, Torrance Learning is running one in September, which I have signed up for. I signed oh, cool. up for very promptly. Awesome. Um, so looking awesome. forward to that very much. Cool. So, and, and how I learned about that was through Curator's excellent MOOC. Oh uh, yeah, and and so they and I'm going to link to the video where they do this, but they talk about some really cool experiments that have been done using XAPI um, with yeah. a lot of different types of organizations that you wouldn't necessarily think of, and and that sort of goes back to what you were talking about people who we don't think of as a part of instructional design or learning experience design, but they were talking about museums, yeah. and massively open oh, yeah. games that have used this mm -hmm. to again enhance performance, solution to to sort of help people with performance and. And they even talked about some of the value propositions for individuals um, in the future where you could sort of prove career and education credentials. And so can, yeah, can you think yeah. of any awesome examples of where XAPI has enabled cool stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, if I couldn't, I should probably be excited. <laughs> but I, 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 there's, a, there's a ton. I think one of my favorites was last year. And actually, this project is technically ongoing, but last year, some members of the, some people from George Mason University, uh, some people in what can now be considered the XAPI community, and a few other people uh, associated with ADL, although ADL didn't formally uh, get involved. They participated in the Global City Challenge, which is um, kind of a, it's, um, how, how would I term it? It's basically kind of calling a bunch of people together to form teams and try to figure out ways to, you know, help. It enables smart cities, I would say. And that, that's something that's still being held right now. Last year, I think the big, the end event where they showed everything was held in DC. So it was very convenient for me. So the challenge here uh, that was undertaken uh, by the team that was composed of uh, Dr. Brenda Bannon from George Mason University, uh, Dr. Shane Gallagher, and several other people who were associated was to create a an emergency medical training simulation test. So uh, along, so they involved a Fairfax Fire and Rescue and Innova Hospital. Dr. Bannon and uh, Dr. Gallagher uh, led it in a simulation design, uh, which I think was the first time XAPI was used in conjunction with the Internet of Things, so IoT, in the field to in in the actual field to collect data from an EMT situation. So the EM, what they staged was a crash site. 
um, out in some parking lot or a street, right? So the dummy that was supposed to be the, the, the crash victim was um, fitted with a with a uh, its own like learning record store. Uh, the EMTs who were approaching the dummy were wearing beacons, and uh, they had Android phones attached to the ambulance uh, and positioned at the doors of the emergency room back at the hospital and located within the simulation mannequin itself. So the whole point of this was to track all sorts of information. So like, you know, how, you know, how long it took EMTs to get to the body once they were deployed, once the call came in, you know, you know, what were the actions that happened inside of the ambulance as it moved down the road? You know, what was the handoff time? What actions happened as people were moving to and fro once the body was received? Uh, how long, you know, what happened between receipt at the ER and then operations in the operating room? So previously, uh, this hospital, you know, had been simply using observers and cameras within the OR to, you know, be able to get kind of like a, um, to be able to do play-by-play analysis later about what happened. And, you know, it was really interesting. I was part of the initial, what we called the, um, I guess, an XAPI Internet of Things hackathon uh, that happened at a place called the Thing Institute, I kid you not, um, up in Maryland. And we, we, uh, we kind of worked out some of the, the systems there. But they, you know, the people I talked about earlier, they did all the, the real work. Anyway, the reason I like this example, and I've not done a really good job of talking about it, I'll include the link in, for you in the show for the show notes. But what I thought was interesting is that the whole intent of this was to track, you know, the I think the capability or, or the competence of the people involved. You know, were they doing the right things at the right time? You know, you know how long did it take? How close were they? You know, were the right people where they were supposed to be? But in the end, I don't think that ended up being the problem. I, if I remember correctly, from talking to a couple of colleagues. What they found was not that people were not competent, right? So they knew everything that they needed to know, and they were where they needed to be. The problem was really about capability. And when I say that, I mean that they didn't have, they didn't always have the materials at hand where they needed them. So, you know, again, I just want to, just for the the record, the problem was not competence; it was capability. It was a, a capability. They were fully capable. Oh, they were sorry, they were fully competent. They could do certain things, but they were not capable of executing things the way they wanted to because they didn't have materials on hand for the simulation. Of course, I'm sure that that's not the case normally. In that sense, you know, that really hits home in terms of a lot of in a lot of industries where people, you know, you're looking at a business process issue uh, or a bit or some sort of performance issue. Let's say, you know, you have to decide as an instructional designer whether it is something that can be fixed by you know more training right or or you know or performance support but you know honestly training and performance support would not have helped in that situation they knew what they needed to know and they were doing what they needed to do they needed the actual supplies with which they could get things done so that's a you know it's a problem to be taken care of by someone else but instructional designers can help surface you know business process issues and then have someone else fix them. But that's, that's something we can do. That's why that's one of my favorite examples. Yeah. But I mean, there, there, there are other examples. There's uh, a project called Reaper, and I don't know what it stands for. It's an acronym. I, I feel like it's a backronym. I think they like the name Reaper, and they just kind of made words fit into it. But <laughs> it is, it, it's another physical, uh, another way to measure physical activity. So uh, Reaper, which is a project that was done, uh, and it started as a um, project jointly through ADL and uh, Riptide Software. It was uh, it basically for marksmanship, marksmanship training rather. So 
you know, there would be sensors uh, on the, the weapon itself and on the range and on the target. They would have people standing by with, you know, uh, observing and their information on tablets or, or, or devices would be also put in. Uh, and so not only were was everything being instrumented and then all data sent to, you know, learning record stores, but, you know, they had a real, they had or rather have a really interesting analytics layer, you know, or, or you know, a dashboard or a set of dashboards so that, you know, individual soldiers could look at their performance and kind of prepare, compare it to their peers. People, commanders could look across, you know, large numbers of soldiers or uh, different uh, different groups, of different classes, and see if there was, you know, sift the data and see if there was any difference. And then you had a research review where they had probably an even wider view uh, and were able to kind of look at things by, you know, look at things like maybe a particular instructor had cohorts that, you know, perform better. Okay, let's maybe investigate why that is, mm-hmm. right? I mean, because it's kind of luck of the draw. If you happen to get a particular instructor, you know, you don't want that to be the case. You want people to have, you know, the best, you know, equal access to the best training. And if someone is doing something particularly well, you want to replicate that. So I like that example for two reasons. One, it's another example of you know getting outside of, <laughs> you know, distance learning, maybe the way that we think of it, you know, and it, it also allows us, it's also another example of tracking information, tracking experience data in places that maybe we really couldn't do accurately before. Uh, but I also like the example because it, it means that, you know, you are able to, again, you're always going back to the idea of surfacing interesting information and then kind of figuring out what you'll do with that information. Yeah, there's, there's a ton. You mentioned the museum idea. Megan, again, I'm going to reference her all day, but Megan Torrance, uh, her work with the Children's Museum in, uh, in, in Michigan. Yeah. I have to say that was, a. Uh, I remember when I and a colleague first saw her present that idea, or what, not an idea, what she had done. Uh, we were both astonished with the speed with which she had, you know, she and, and her uh, colleagues had done it, but also the idea that, you know, when we think of XAPI, um, I think traditionally we often think about, okay, well, you know, a lot of this data is going to go to the cloud, right? Eventually, even if you're doing offline, you're going to, it's going to go to the cloud eventually so that you can, so that, you know, it'll be at the LRS so all the data can be free. She was working with some constraints where she wanted to track participant information and so she could report it to teachers and other people but respecting the privacy of children you know she wanted to make sure that it was a closed system so that you know and she realized she didn't need the 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 kids names she just needed to be able to identify distinct activities so she they created um xapi uh statements sending to an lrs in a closed system so you know it wasn't really going to the internet at all which you know is a really it, it, to your listeners, and probably said, given what I said earlier, that probably sounds like well, duck, right? But uh, at the time, you're like, wow, you hadn't thought about that. And, and and by the way, that's just one of the things that I really want to leave people with is that you know these technologies that ADL works on that we all try to get out there. We just want to put them out there and let people do stuff that make us do that. Like go like wow, like we hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm awesome examples. And and uh, for those of you who are listening, definitely we're going to have a ton of show notes this show. But okay, so Craig, yeah, <laughs> last question here. We've talked about the curator MOOC. We've talked about the XAPI learning cohort. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm an ID. I'm excited about this. I want to learn more. Like, how do I jump into the XAPI community and get involved? And try stuff out. Oh, well, um, the easiest way, <laughs> although maybe not for me, 
would just be to contact me. But here we are talking. So <laughs> you've taken the first step. There, well, one of the first things would be uh, there are several experience API uh, communities of practice in existence. And when I say that, uh, I should back up and say that because of the structure of XAPI statements, you know, actor, verb, object, and then of course there are several other things can be attached to a statement or make up a statement, but those are the main components. The verb portion is very important. You know, uh, my colleague Jason Haig and several other people in the community are working on, you know, best practices for disambiguation so that, you know, a verb in one context, you know, the verb fire, right? You know, you can fire someone or you can fire a weapon. So those, while it's the same word, the verb has different meanings in different contexts. So trying to, you know, to achieve disambiguation between domains is something that we're all working on. Different groups uh, have sprung up that are working on different domains. So there is a XAPI community of practice associated with video, right? So like what are best practices for creating statements associated with interaction with video? Because interactive video that, you know, sends statements about what's happening is something that, you know, is already happening. Uh, but what's the best way to do that? Uh, there are ones associated with ebooks. So, you know, XAPI enabled ebooks, the actionable data book project in, uh, in particular. There are, there's a really uh, interesting one on social collaboration. Uh, basically, you know, how do things, you know, how to express stuff that's happening with, uh, anyway, I could go on and on. These communities of practice, if you go to adlnet.gov, uh, I believe our collaboration page. Uh, has a link to all of the uh, communities of practice that we know about, although there are many others. So that's a good way to get started. If you are interested in uh, you know, getting your hands dirty, obviously the, the learning cohort. If you are interested in looking at the, you know, some examples of code or things like that, the XAPI or rather the ADL uh, GitHub repositories are, are just there waiting for you. There are also uh, XAPI spec meetings that are held, I think, every other week. Uh, Andy Johnson is going to kill me because I don't remember, but are held every other week, you know, online so people can, you know, talk about, you know, and advocate for different aspects of the spec and, and what's going on. Uh, there is also an XAPI design Google group that's out there that's still taking questions and still answering questions. And uh, we used heavily during the XAPI design cohorts, but it's still out there and full of stuff. Um, the XAPI there's also a Google group for the XAPI spec group, uh, that group that I was talking about that meets, uh, meets bi-weekly. And yeah, gosh, there's a lot. There's also, and I should say, you know, our friends at uh, Connections Forum, they have been holding XAPI camps like, you know, like it was nobody's business. They have been, you know, getting, you know, they've been really good at kind of putting together events where people can get involved and start learning things and, and, and hear about what's going on in the industry. Uh, there are websites like learnxapi.com, which is just, you know, that is actually really chock full of uh, resources and guides and, and information about, you know, how to get started. There's a series, like I said, the series of like six or five or six articles that we wrote for the eLearning Guild, uh, for uh, Learning Solutions Magazine uh, last year. And, and I have an unofficial list of XAPI resources that I keep and share with my closest friends, which means everyone listening to us. <laughs> That's right. You heard it here for us. You're all Craig's yep. closest friends. All, all, all nine million. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Craig. This has been a great episode. I, I learned a lot. I loved this conversation. Craig made me challenge myself and my thinking, and I really hope that this conversation has done the same for you. To steal from Gwyneth Paltrow, we need to make a conscious uncoupling of instructional design work from e-learning, which is a part and a small part 
of all of the possible solutions, tools, and tech that we can employ to solve problems for people. And to be honest, this also really made me really excited about experimenting with the XAPI. I really do want to get my hands on that and figure out what it can do. Tons and tons of links in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. You can contact Craig on Twitter. He's at OXALA75 on Twitter, and he's also the mod of the eLearning subreddit. And as always, you can reach out to me. I'm at AnthChris, or you can shoot me an email at Kristen at DearInstructionalDesigner.com. I'd really love to hear if there are any particular tools or tech that you want to hear about this season. Let me know. Thank you so much for listening and take care.